Thessalonians 5, which is our chapter for today. Um, Steve gave a title uh, to this message this morning, that of complacency. Um, I don't know if you've got that picture there, Paul, have you? You can put up in a minute. I don't know if you'll see this, but um, can you see that? (laughs) Who would do that? (laughs) Who would do that? If you can't see it, it's a guy sitting on a rocking chair reading, um, obviously, the daily paper, obviously quite relaxed there, right in the middle of a railway track. And uh, immediately I saw this picture, and I, I thought to myself, yeah, that picture really talks that out, doesn't it? It sort of shows what it is. But we live in a world where pro- people, and it could be someone here this morning, are particularly like that in relation to God's claim on your life. I know something's going to happen down the line. I don't know what, I don't know when, but in the meantime, I will just sit back and enjoy myself. God, through Jesus Christ, has provided a way of eternal salvation, an escape from the judgment of God in the day to come, that we can have now. And we're complacent about that. People are complacent about that putting off the evil day, as it were, putting off... The Bible says now is the day of acceptance. Now is the day to accept Jesus Christ. And I could sum up, uh, through our prayer meeting yesterday, um, uh, the words of the, 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 um, the song which, was, which came out of a spiritual black community, um, like lots of songs did in the past. Uh, it went like this, Get right with God and do it now. That's my message. It's over. I'm not being complacent, but I'm saying to you, get right with God. Right? And you can be non-complacent about your need of Jesus by doing it now. You say, well, I've had time to think about it. Okay, that's fine. God is a God of reason because God said in Isaiah, come, let us reason together. Let us reason it out. Your life, your sins are in need of a saviour. Your life is in need of deliverance and salvation, rescue from eternal judgment. And it's not necessarily because of you. It's necessary in order that God might preserve an almighty, amazing future for you and give it to you so that your life will be safe for eternity. Because that's what God had originally intended. An eternal life with none of this difficulty and problematic life that we have. Things going the wrong way. It's all because of one word that the Bible uses, which is sin. But we like to explain that in different ways. Because uh, deception and uh, false truth and um, murder and all sorts of horrible things are the result of something which happened some time ago and we need to escape from that and in our passage in Thessalonians we actually read about the day of the Lord can you tell you God's got a program 
We might not think it, but he has a program. He's got a program. And I'll remind you of the verse which was spoken in Acts, which says, God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he's ordained. Who's the man he's ordained? Jesus. So Jesus is coming back again to actually do a process in the parable which he told us to separate the sheep from the goats. Separate the sheep from the goats. I don't apologise being confrontational, but please excuse me, because I don't want to be complacent about you being lost for eternity. Because you could be today. Because Jesus has offered us the way of salvation today. That's what the cross speaks about. It, it, it speaks about people responding to what Jesus did. Earlier I, 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 um, I mentioned the fact that we're amazing people. Um, and it came from a verse in the Bible which begins, You are a chosen generation. It means Christians are a generation that have come to him by choice. That is one way of describing it. Not by forcing. They've actually chosen Jesus Christ. So that they become a chosen generation. So in other words, God is saying, if you like my son, I like you. If you've chosen my son, then you're my choice. It's as simple as that. It's not that God says, like a football team, well, I'll have you, 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 and you. I'll have you because you look good, and you because you've done good works, and Mother Teresa because she's given her life over to serving the poor. No, it's not because of that. Not that sort of choice. The choice is because you have chosen the chosen one. We're a people of choice. A people of choice. So let's read this passage together. It begins by talking about the times and the seasons, God's program in this earth. And are we ready for it? Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Do you, re do you really believe that? The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And it says, while people are saying there is peace and security, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labour pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Here's the change, here's the difference. He's speaking to Christians in the Thessalonian church. He said, but you, it's different. There's a separation Look at the words. He said in verse 3, while people are saying, then he said, they will not escape. And then he said, but you are not in darkness, or you're not darkness. Because having come to Jesus, they've come to the light. They've come to what the Bible calls the light. So you see there's a difference between two groups of people. We might say, there's those that are in, and there's those that are out. Those that are in, and those that are out. It's a crude way of saying it, I know. But I think God wants to impress upon you that God will, in the final day, separate between good and evil. The separation of the sheep and the goats. Verse 4, But you, the Christians in Thessalonica, are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief in the night. 
Paul had already, and John spoke about this last week, he spoke about the coming of the Lord Jesus. Do you really take that on, that any time now Jesus could come back? Have you taken that on? You know, he could come back any time. He's promised to come back, and he will come back. When Steve called this message and called it about complacency, what are we doing about it? I mean, as a church, how, are we complacent about what we do, what we do, and how we do it? We could quite easily be. Jesus could come at any time. He said he's coming. He said, because Paul began, now the times and seasons. When Jesus came the first time, when Jesus came the first time, the Bible tells us this. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son to be the saviour of the world. That's one of the times and seasons. In the fullness of time, at the exact time, God sent forth his Son to be the saviour of the world. That's one event in God's programme. That was his first coming. The second coming is yet to happen. And he's coming back. Be sure, make no mistake. You say, well, why are you so, why are you, why are you so arrogant by saying, I said, because this is biblical truth. It's not me. And as Billy Graham always used to start his message, the Bible says. Yeah, you remember that? And if the Bible says it, it doesn't just say it in one place. It's referred to all the way through Scripture. It talks about the day of the Lord, and we come to that in a moment. So we're at verse 6. So then, let us not sleep as others do. You know, don't get complacent. But let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, that is, the people who are sheltering beneath Jesus and what he's done for us. He hasn't destined us for wrath, but to obtain that salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So this is good news for the church of Jesus Christ. It's good news for believers in Jesus Christ because actually he's going to sort it all out. That's what he's coming back to do. Those things that have troubled you in your life, God's going to distance you from them. The person even, that could be a person, it could be a situation, but God is going to move according to his justice because he preserves, he wants to preserve that which he originally intended. That was total goodness for his creation. Total goodness, total delight, total future, eternity. He wants you to have that. And that's what Jesus gave his life for, that we might know him. That we might know him. Now, I just want to create a couple of scenarios if uh, you was in a multiple pile crash up, crash like there was on the um, Sheerness Bridge a couple of years ago, now I think it was, who do you blame? Do you blame the fog? Do you blame the situation that you were driving too close behind the person in front? 
do you blame, as the people are doing, that the road wasn't designed properly and it was an unsafe road? Where does the blame lie? Where does the blame lie? The other day I was up a ladder and, um, you know, a double extension ladder. And these two women were coming down the road. One was quite old and the other one was soon after her. Um, and uh, she stopped at the bottom of my ladder and expected me to climb down from the ladder so that she couldn't walk underneath it. Now, if something had fallen on her head, who would be to blame? Who would be to blame if something fell on her head? I don't know. If you walked into a lamppost, who would you blame? Hmm? Oh, I didn't see it. In fact, many years ago, I was in Folkestone doing a job of finishing a Peter Lord shoe shop off, and it was the day of completion, and I was busy. It was a day we were at camp, due to go to camp, and I was behind with the work because of a problem. And uh, the glazers had put the two glass doors in for the shop, and there he was polishing away at the glass, and he let me out. I went to get something in my van, and I didn't see the door shut, and I went smack. And there it was. And I woke up in the morning and Margaret looked at me, what you been doing, she said. I said, it was that blessed window cleaner. He cleaned the glass so clear that I couldn't even see it there. And I went into it and I said, who do, in, in here, who do I blame? <laughs> who do I blame? But this is a personal question to you. When you're standing before God, if you're standing before God and you were to be dismissed from his presence, who would you blame? We have an extremely complicated tax system. And they've sort of changed the way that they do things over the years. And... Um, our tax system is complicated, isn't it? It really is complicated. When I was working in South America, they had a very simple rule, 10% for everyone. Easy, isn't it? The more you earn, the more you pay. The less you earn, the less you pay. I like that idea. It seems to be a lot better idea, but I don't know. So we're Britain. We have a complicated tax system. And now they have disassociated themselves from you. They always have been, I know. But they expect you to know everything and they will tell you very little. They said, well, we've got it all on the web. If you want to know something, all you have to do is on the web. But what about the person who's not used to using the computer? I don't know. But we've tried phoning up and they won't help you. And the last thing they end up saying is, look on the web. <sighs> you know, you can go round and round in circles, can't you? They've disassociated themselves from giving you understanding. Now, God has never disassociated himself from giving us understanding about the future, about our lives now, and about what he requires of us. He's not done it. He's given us his word, and it's wonderful. And this is part of Paul telling the church what he does expect of us. Paul's amazing missionary. And um, he... In fact, it's all right, Derek, I'm only going to be a couple more minutes. You don't have to look at your watch, it's okay. <clears throat> I know you've been to camp and I know it's, tire I know it's tiring, but uh, we won't be long, mate. We'll soon be there. Um, yeah, 
But Paul told them exactly what God required of them. But Paul actually wasn't complacent in what he was doing with this church. And I just want to remind us of just one or two things that can help us as a church. The first thing is urgency. Is urgency. I think you've understood Paul, haven't you, as we've read this letter together. He's pleading with them to get rid of the stuff, the cleaning up, if you like, the things that are actually going to ruin their church, ruin their community, and help build a faith in Jesus Christ for the future. You know, the sexual immorality and all that sort of stuff. But not only that, the fact that they needed to show love for one another. And um, he used these, these words. He said, I want you to do this more and more. Don't stop where you are, but keep on going. That's the progress and the process of the Christian life. We become disciples and we're pursuing God more and more. A few years, uh, Fred brought a book along and he said, read this book, it's good, it's called God Chasers. You know, people who are, want to get after God and follow him to find out what he's got for us. God Chasers. Are you a God Chaser? But Paul demonstrated this urgency in the good news of the gospel. He, what's ahead? Safeguarding the church in Thessalonica. Now, the, the first vital ingredient of a church which is, who is not, which is not complacent is prayer. Prayer is the vital ingredient of church life. And this we can demonstrate to God that we're not complacent about anything. And the first thing he mentioned in verse 1, in chapter 1, verse 1, he said that I'm, we're mentioning you in our prayers. Now, where are you with this? Do you occasionally mention someone in your prayers? Do I just mention someone in my praying? Do we just mention someone? But he says, we mention you in our prayers. In other words, they're in my mind, they're in my heart, and I want to pray for them. In chapter 1, verse 3, we read these words, we continually remember you before God. So what does that mean? Once a week? Once a month? Once a year? Once a day? Or does it mean what he says in the verse that comes a little bit later? Three verse ten. Night and day we pray most earnestly. I was challenged uh, when we had our three grandsons for a week down at Hythe. It was a bit of a struggle. And um, I must admit. But you know, I came away from that and I thought to myself, you know, God, I need to pray for them every day. I need to pray for them every day for God to keep them and that God would lead them in the right direction. When Barbara told us about Trace his need. I was challenged to pray for him daily just before he got up so that we might, I just might mention him and remember him continually before God. And we have, as a church, we can demonstrate our love for one another in how we pray for one another. We have a prayer meeting Saturday morning and we have other prayer times 
and we need to get behind them because it's a vital ingredient for the church. It demonstrates we're not being complacent about God's church. We're showing we mean business with God. Prayer. Second thing is care of the most noble kind of including a mix of maternal and paternal care. Listen to me. Paul, this is how, this is how he's treating these Christians at, Thessalon- at Thessalonica. You know, he said, we were gentle and kind like a mother caring for her children. Like a mother. You'd have thought he would have used the male gender first, wouldn't you? But here is Paul demonstrating really what the heart of God is for you and for me. God is like a mother. I know people get very hot under the collar, you know, about giving God a female gender as such or anything like that. But in actual fact, God demonstrates genuine maternal characteristics towards his people. That means he's got a constant eye on you. You don't let your child out of your sight. And God doesn't let you out of his sight. Paul said, I care for you. I love you like a mother loves her child. And it says little children, you know? Not the ones that are getting a bit confident now, but those who need total 100% eye on them, caring for them. So he cared for them. And the way that we can demonstrate that as a church, that we're not being complacent, is actually to demonstrate that towards one another, that motherly care. And I find that difficult. I find that very, very difficult. But if God is touching us and moving us that way, that's what he expects. It's demonstrating a sense of urgency about God's church and what he's doing. Now we find these things difficult, we ask for help. The third thing is where there's a will, here's a helper. Because Paul was unable to go and visit this church personally. So what does he do? He sends Timothy. In chapter 3, verse 2, when he couldn't go, he sent Timothy. Well, he could say, well, I'm stuck here in prison by circumstances. They will just have to wait. You know what we say to our kids, I'm busy. You will just have to wait. No, he sends Timothy. You know, where there's a will, there's a worker. And you know, it actually reminds us of where we are with Greenhill, with Herne Bay. If we have a will to be part of this church, we need to be workers. There's always someone. And if we can't do it ourselves, we can tell someone else or get someone else to do it and find someone else who will. Where there's a will, there's a worker. He could say, well, I'm finished, so that's that. Paul could have said that. And he could have said, I'm the only one who can help them. They know me and like me. There's no one else suitable to go. It's not. It's Paul revealing his heart. A genuine thing. Really, it's God's glory, God's way. I'm not really the only one that can do it. Someone else can do it as well. So we work as a team. We work as a team for blessing God's church and blessing one another. 
I just want to finish by talking about the day of the Lord. Paul has demonstrated his urgency in his own life about he is working with the church and in the church. I've already spoken about Jesus coming again and what he's going to do, but the day of the Lord is significant in biblical understanding, if you like. When Adam and Eve first sinned, and they'd actually ruined the relationship that they had originally with God, God drove them out of the garden. And so, you know, there's that separation I'm talking about. God drove them out, and we read that he put a cherubim and a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. God was protecting his standard, if you like. God was protecting his holiness, his holiness, And we need to do that too as a church and as individuals to protect God's holiness. But those two things, the cherubim and the flaming sword, are two marvellous things because they give us the understanding that God is a God of mercy, identified by the cherubim, and he's a God of justice, shown by the sword. So you see that also when God was going to bring a flood. And he told Noah, I want you to prepare an ark and go into the ark, you and your family, and be safe. But what about all the rest of the people who, were, who lost their lives? This is the justice and the mercy of God working hand in hand. The day of the Lord. That was the day of the Lord. When Jesus came and was crucified and he died on that cross, he was not only providing salvation for people who chose him, but he was actually giving the death knell to the wickedness in the earth. He was going to deal with that too. And Jesus dealt with both. He gave us life and he produced death, if you like, or separation because God is still protecting his holiness through the cross and bringing justice through the cross too. That too was a day of the Lord. But there's a day of the Lord yet to come. And I've already spoken about that, and I just want to leave you with that. Are you complacent about that day, which is yet to come? Or, as the writer to the Hebrews said, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Risnan. If, you, if you're standing before God and you'd be in that happy, unhappy position, who would you blame? God has given no more than all that we need to trust him for salvation. Are you going to receive that? Solemn words, and I've been confrontational, I'm well aware of that, but I trust you receive it with grace and love because it's being a point of not being complacent about what's yet to come in Jesus name